Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Michelle Wright. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Now, Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Now, every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land. Treaty was never made in Australia. Michelle Wright is an award-winning short fiction writer. Her collection Fine was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript and was published in 2016. Today, Michelle is joining us with her debut novel, Small Acts of Defiance. It's January 1940. Lucy and her mother Yvonne must leave Australia for France following the death of Lucy's father. They are taken in by Gerard, Yvonne's brother and their only surviving relative. Despite feeling that she might never fit in as a Parisian, Lucy endeavours to settle into the fabled City of Lights, sketching postcards for sale at a nearby art supply store. But Lucy's arrival coincides with the invasion of France by Germany, As the Germans exert more and more control, Lucy must decide whether to shelter in the relative safety or make a show of resistance. Join me as we discover Michelle Wright's Small Acts of Defiance. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrew. It's lovely to be here. This book excited me because not only is, uh, I think in the vernacular we'd call it a ripping yarn, but it's got a lot of really interesting ideas In January 1940, Lucy and her mother Yvonne must leave Australia for France following the death of Lucy's father. They're taken in by Gerard, Yvonne's brother and their only surviving relative. Now, despite feeling she might never fit in as a Parisian, Lucy endeavours to settle into the fabled city of lights, sketching postcards for sale at a nearby art supply store. But Lucy's arrival coincides with the invasion of France by Germany. And as the Germans exert more and more control, Lucy must decide whether to shelter in her relative safety or to make a show of resistance. I mean, the setup alone is gripping, Michelle. What I noticed, though, is as we arrive in Paris with Lucy and Yvonne, I felt like you were conspicuously shrouding the city behind Lucy's naive first impressions. Now, given that this is a city both well-documented and frequently captured across popular media, was it, was it a challenge to kind of capture this, this blush of first discovery? Not really, because, I mean, I, I was really drawing on my own experience. Um, when I was 21, I went to live in Paris. And as you say, look, it's a city that we all know, um, but there's there's a real difference when you're actually plunged into the city. It's a very, it's a huge metropolis. It's it's many cities within the city. So it takes a little while to actually discover the city and to, to come to terms with it and to and to form your own image of it. So that's what I was trying to capture by having my protagonist be an outside, outsider like I was, you know, when I arrived in Paris. And hopefully the reader through her eyes really trying to wander around the streets of Paris, come to terms that form her own idea of, of what this city is and what its people are. And there's also this huge, you know, complex history that she she has to, to come to terms with as well. I mean, France, French society, French culture, French history is very, very rich and deep. And for a young 16-year-old as my protagonist is or a 21-year-old as I was, 
yeah, that takes a little bit of, of coming to terms with, even when you think you do know Paris, you know, quite well from from you know, postcards and uh, at the time, you know, uh, newsreels and things like that. So hopefully that's that's what the reader will also feel, this gradual discovery through Lucy's eyes. And of course, there are multiple frames of disorientation here as Lucy starts to feel comfortable. She is unsettled by meeting new people. She has this feeling that perhaps she'll never be as Parisian as them. And then an, an army has, has come in, taken over the city and fundamentally shifted the way things are for everyone. Was it was it your goal to kind of have the reader constantly on shaky ground in this way? Yeah, I think so because, um, as you say, when she first arrives, it's, it's during the phony war. So the um, even though war has been declared, the Germans haven't yet arrived in Paris. And then when they do uh, arrive, and there's this mass exodus of Parisians and French people in general, that eight million people had to hit the roads and, and leave Paris. And when they come back a couple of months later, there is a, a dramatic transformation. You see the the flags, the German the swastikas hanging from all the Parisian buildings, floating from the Eiffel Tower, the German patrols in the streets. And it's it's an unknown for, for Lucy and for all Parisians. And there are curfews, there are restrictions, there are big propaganda posters, there are German um signposts in the street. So it is very disorienting. She just come she just started to, to come to terms with this city and, and feel at home there. And suddenly this city is transformed. Um, and I think that not only is it but all the Parisians were trying to uh, re you know, negotiate and navigate through this what had become a really foreign landscape with foreign um, language being spoken in the streets, you know, German patrols, German soldiers, German signposts. Um, so there was a real a, a time of adjustment, I think, for them to re um, to take ownership of their city again once it had been um, occupied by the Germans. Can we stay with that a little bit more? Because I I can imagine that there would also have been a challenge in overcoming a, a, a sort of a given reader's preconceptions about the atmosphere of war. Now, of course, we all we understand that war is not just what we see. On the on the silver screen presented in that in the kind of you know glorified battlefield, but given that this novel transpires almost exclusively in Paris with battles that are within earshot, but are very are rarely on the streets themselves, and given that this you're you're writing about a period where there was intense, as you say, propaganda and a battle, I guess, for the hearts and minds of people, what? What were you looking at um, exploring in the historical moment, but also in, in just around this idea of of that type of conflict, that sort of almost philosophical conflict? Yeah, and, it, and as you say, it was a very strange situation in France because there were a lot of occupied countries, but France had was actively collaborating. So the, the head of the French state, Pétain, who was a, like the grandfather of the, the nation, a revered man, he was a World War One hero, and he had signed this, Armistice and, and decided to collaborate with the Germans, and so you had the the French population and the Parisian population that I was examining really torn between this promise that Pétain had made to them to keep them safe, and this was the price that had to be paid. This collaboration was the price that had to be paid to keep the war out of Paris. You know, when the Germans approached Paris, um, Paris was declared an open city, so they they handed over the keys to Paris. The government had fled and they asked actually the American ambassador to do the official handing over of Paris to the Germans. 
And this was uh, a, a compromise that they had made so that the, the Parisians and the French more generally would not be swept up in this violent war. They would return to some form of normality, a, a type of peace, even though there were harsh conditions imposed, there was food rationing, there were curfews and patrols and things like that. They, Pétain and the French population had agreed to pay this price um, and to have, to, so that the war wasn't present in Paris. Paris wasn't destroyed. Uh, there wasn't a battle for Paris. But then you did, they did have to settle into this very unusual situation of an occupied city. Um, and so that's what I wanted to portray that very quickly, uh, life had to just get back to normal. The shops opened up, people were going to work, uh, they were, um, dealing with the different restrictions. The restrictions then started to become more and more present, especially for the Jewish population. Um, but, there had been a, a long, long history of anti-Semitism in France. So for some people, that was really alarming to see. But for a lot of a large part of the population, um, that was the price they were willing to pay to sacrifice uh, their Jewish neighbours. And uh, there had been a lot of Jews arriving from the east, obviously, um, after Poland was invaded. Um, so there was this uncomfortable compromise that was made by a large part of the French population to, in order to go on with their lives as normally as they could um, and avoid that, as you said, that direct conflict, that battle, that, that state of war. Um, so it really was an unusual situation in Paris for the whole time until the liberation of Paris in, in August 44. Now, I don't want to draw too long a bow because I am, I am conscious of the fact that this was a book that was a long time in the researching, perhaps even, as you, you suggested in your mind, um, from the time you were 21 and first arriving in Paris. But obviously, this book was, was created and the gestation long before our current situation. But some of the words you mentioned there... Um, the, the extraordinary situations we're under, the desire to get back to normal, even though there are restrictions placed on our lives, even though the world is obviously not normal. Just It could not help but make me think about the world that we're living in right now. And I'm, I'm speaking to you, you're in Melbourne, where... Um, you know, you've just come out of lockdown. I'm I'm just outside yeah. of Sydney, where we're we're sort of going. Yeah, it's got to, It's it's got to happen soon, surely. Mm. Did you did you over the last year reflect at all on on what you had written and what you were living through? Oh, absolutely. And what I really, I think, what I discovered was that in times of war and in times of pandemic and in times of crisis, human beings, our default position is just to try and revert back to as, as normal a, a situation as possible. And it's incredible that even with a global pandemic, um, we, we find ways, we're very resilient, we're very resourceful, and we find ways of just carrying on as normally as possible. But what I also discovered was that, you know, it, it brings out situations like this, this bring out the best and the worst in people. And we saw that with, with little things like hoarding of toilet paper and, and things like that. But also, you know, the anti-mask movements and the anti-vaxxer movements, um, you do get this polarisation. And so um, even though it was a very different situation during the, the war, um, you certainly had that same polarisation and false uh, information and propaganda and, and seeing the impact that that could have on people's um, attitudes and beliefs about what was happening. Um, you could have these extremely polarised beliefs about about the, the actual situation. 
Um, and look, and even more so, when I was, I, I got a six month Australia Council for the Arts residency um, in Paris to write this novel to, to do a lot of the research for it. And that was in 2017, 18. So Trump had just come to power and we were seeing neo Nazis, you know, proudly saluting. We were seeing white supremacists, uh, Marching with burning torches. Um, there was the then soon after the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, we there was such strong echoes of what we'd seen in the Second World War: the, the extremism, the scapegoatism. The so yeah, the, those, those extremes that came out during the Second World War um, were being reflected and echoed in 2017, 18, with with all these extremist movements that were resurfacing under Trump. Um, and so it was a real message to me to, to say that, you know, even though this novel is set 80 years ago, I think some of the lessons about what we have to learn about humanity from history are just as relevant today. And into that situation, Lucy exists in this almost perfect liminal zone where she has so many opportunities to, for involvement or non-involvement. The what and the how of Lucy's involvement, it becomes this source of constant debate for herself amongst others and also recrimination. Now at the very beginning of the novel, Lucy's father tells her the adult world, it's a brutal place. You'll need art to make sense of it. And this is obviously something of a guarded statement because art clearly did not help Alfred to make sense of all of his demons, but art also becomes central to Lucy's own, if you'll forgive my using your title, small acts of defiance. I was hoping you yeah. could open up a little bit on the, the philosophy of creating art in response to oppression, which you explore broadly through Lucy's narrative. Well, that's right. I mean, Lucy um, you know, is an amateur artist. Uh, she uses art, without giving away too many spoilers, you know, in her small acts of defiance against the occupiers um, in collaboration with her friend Aline. Um, but as you say, there is this tension and, and this unanswered question for her and for the people that she's working with about the the validity of, of art, the power of art to resist when you're faced with such extreme brutality. Um, so at one stage, I think, when Lucy and Aline are at odds, they both have different approaches and take different have different attitudes to the types of small acts of defiance that they should be engaging in. And, and Aline criticises Lucy at one stage saying, you know, this whole pen is mightier than the sword business. You know, that that's not true when the pen is a... A panzer, when the sword is a panzer tank or a machine gun. And so there is this tension between the two of them about, and, and for Lucy herself, about you know, how powerful is art, how powerful are words um, faced with that extreme violence? You know, at what stage, if any, do you need to answer violence with violence? Or should you never compromise that principle? Should you never be dragged down to the level of your enemy um, and use their, their means? Um, and but that's not an easy question to answer. I don't know if Lucy or Aline ever you know, answered that fully, and I don't know if we can either, um, because obviously art and, and words um, and creativity are powerful tools, and we've seen that you know, recently with um, Black Lives Matter and, and response to other ex- um, ex- well, to extremism and to white supremacism. But when you are faced with, with violence, um, state-imposed violence, you know, how far can art really go? So I think that's an interesting question. I don't know if I had the answer to it. And I guess even in my creative act of writing this novel and wanting to explore these questions, um, 
sometimes when you see what's going on in the world around you, you think, you know, is this really uh, what I should be spending my time doing? You know, is the act of creativity and the use of art um, a sufficient response to to extremism? Um, and I guess that's something that we all have to answer for ourselves. And look, it's easy with hindsight to look back perhaps at the Second World War and to think, look, you know, were these people wasting their time, you know, making up, making flyers and po- putting posters up on walls? You know, was that enough? Now that we know what was actually happening at that time, um, and you know, that is the big tension, I guess, in the novel between Lucy and Aline uh, about how they, just how far, uh, how powerful these words and art can be. Um, so hopefully, yeah, that'll be an interesting discussion point for people reading the novel and um, as I said there's no easy answer but I think it's something worth thinking about and examining. And I think it's extraordinary putting that discussion in the middle of a war zone in in these very high stakes situations because we get a sense of of the scope and the the juxtaposition of of the sort of the heat of the moment that you describe, but then also the scope of the novel that you write um, taking place over a number of years. I mean, if if art is going to work, if this idea that we create in order to to reach out, to connect with others, to to engage them in thought, it's it's got to be something that happens over a period of years and scope. And I mean, I think to challenge you on what you just said there writing and writing a novel and, and, and doing something that reflects allows you to to show us that that period and give us a better sense, a sense that we might not get when we're in the moment. It was extraordinary during mm. the novel also. You you showed um, Lucy and Aline discussing whether art can prevail in these circumstances. You also gave us a sense of the ways their enemies, so specifically the Germans, were doing the opposite. They were they had the force of the sword, as you say, but they also tried to use art in the form of propaganda, in the form of uh, very, very, I guess, prejudiced and biased exhibitions to also engage in the with in the hearts and minds, the artistic sensibility of the people that they were trying to win over, because it was important to them that they, on on some nominal level, won people over. Um, if you can't tell, I'm I'm very much falling down on the side of art is a worthy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Art yeah. is a worthy practice. <laughs> we just need to. I think. I think anyone who who works in education listening is probably saying yes. But you do need that time. You know, you need. Um, I'm I'm starting to sound you know vaguely. Is it sort of a Jesuit maxim that uh, you know you give me a child by before the age of so and so, and I'll show you the man type of thing. But art requires mm-hmm. that time to to work on our minds and to to yeah to infiltrate us. <laughs> Yeah, and look, I think that's why I call the novel Small Acts of Defiance because I think they all come to they un- Lucy understands the power of art but realises that it's not the whole answer, that she needs to just persist and each small act is, is contributing and, you know, when, when you have millions of people each contributing their own small acts, you, you can prevail. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the message, that you need time and you need, um, you know, numbers behind you as well. Mm. And as you said, I mean, those exhibitions, um, there was one particular exhibition called um, uh, The Jew and France, um, which was which received millions of visitors. Um, and, yeah, as you say, you can go online and see the actual images that were exhibited in this exhibition, and they are, they're horrifying. But millions of Parisians went along to that, and so the Germans and the French authorities, the collaborationist French authorities, absolutely recognised the power of the image and the written word and used it very, very effectively. 
in what was already a kind of a fertile ground in France, because as I said, they had, did have a long history of anti-Semitism. Um, but they, the, the words and the images that they used, that the Germans and the French authorities used, were also extremely powerful. So you do have to fight fire with fire. I think you know that's that's why the, um, the ordinary citizens, but also the resistance, also recognised the power of art and words and used that effectively as well. Now you've already touched on Lucy's meeting and growing friendship with Aline, and. When when they first meet, it's very much Lucy sees a friend and possibly someone who who can be her entree into um, the world and the society of Paris. But but almost immediately though, it's thrown into turmoil. It's turned on its head because Lucy's rights as a Jewish woman to be Parisian, to even be French, are challenged by the edicts of the Vichy government, um, and they're particularly exemplified in those conversations that Lucy has with her uncle Gerard. Now, we've seen and we're going to likely continue to see convenient scapegoating of groups in times of crisis. You know, even now in Australia, we've seen racist acts against people of Asian descent in response to these sort of vague claims around coronavirus. Did you want Lucy's kind of growing understanding of these topics to to show some way of making sense of these arguments? Because Lucy is, is very much um, – she – she wants to support Aline and she very much cannot understand, uh, I guess, the, the open racism that uh, Gerard, he has no shame in showing. Mm. Yeah, and that's right. I think um, Lucy is very naive when she arrives. And as you say, Aline is much more politically aware. Um, she's only about a year older than um, Lucy, but French students have a, a long history of being very politically active. And so, as you say, um, Aline does really initiate Lucy into the world of student activism. Very early on, there's a a student demonstration against the occupation. And so, through um, Lucy's eyes and through Aline's influence, um, hopefully the reader then, little by little, you know, is made aware of of the political situation in France, of the history um, there. Um, But um, I think that um, what I wanted to show as well with Gérard as you point out, he is he's also suffered like Alfred, like Lucy's father, has suffered from the First World War and, and considers the Germans the these, you know, eternal enemies. But like a lot of French people, he had put enormous faith in Pétain, the leader, um, to to do the right thing by the French. Um, and so despite his hatred of the Germans, I think his anti Semitism trumps that and he he sees the the these, what they, he considers foreigners, even though a lot of these Jewish people have been in France for generations and generations, um, he you know, he falls absolutely falls that the scapegoating of the Jewish people, and considers that that is a sacrifice. He's willing to make the sacrifice of this part of the French population in order to safeguard what he sees as as the the essential French values. And there's a really striking thing that happened during the Second World War, well, very early on, in fact. Um, so the French, we all know the French motto of liberté, égalité, fraternité. So, you know, liberty, equality and, and um, brotherhood. Um, and Pétain, um, and that had been in place since the revolution. And Pétain very quickly replaced those that motto with three new words, which were travail, famille, patrie, which is work, family and fatherland. And, and there are such echoes with, you know, the conservative, um, especially US politicians nowadays, and that mm. that um, 
clawing back and, and trying to focus on family, supposed family values and religious values and, and patriotism bordering on nationalism. And that is what um, Gérard, you know, espoused uh, open-heartedly. He um, was very willing to, to go along with, to be led, like a large part of the French population, down that road with Pétain um, and, and willing to sacrifice, you know, even, even though that meant collaborating with this you know, enemy of centuries, you know, history, the Germans, he was willing to do that if it meant holding on to this nationalism and, um, and pride and anti-Semitism that he had. It's a sentiment that I also found related in a, a quote from Yvonne in a, in a latter part of the book where she says, now it feels like those people have permission to say out loud what they've always felt. And that takes me back to an earlier part of our conversation where you talked about um, having a grant to to work on the on the manuscript in Paris around the time of, of Trump's rise to power in America. And it's a sentiment that I feel mm-hmm. like it very accurately describes our world, particularly in relation to online conversation. It's almost a little despairing as well because it, it, it kind of speaks to the fact that there are there are places in people's hearts and minds that perhaps can't be touched and they only need to be emboldened to start to echo them. Um, how, were you, how were you feeling or how, was, how do you think Yvonne was feeling about that particular moment and that particular sentiment? Look, I think she was probably feeling like we all feel when we hear you know, these extreme um, opinions come out and realise that, as you say, there are people that we know, colleagues, neighbours, maybe even friends, who have been harbouring these thoughts and opinions and attitudes. And it only takes, as you say, a politician to embolden people, for people to start expressing those opinions, especially online nowadays. Um, back then, obviously, it was in person. But you know, as I said, there had been uh, a long history of extremism and anti-Semitism in France, even though there was also this wonderful tradition of you know, equality and, and liberty. Um, there had been the Dreyfus Affair, for people who know French um, history a little bit, just at the turn of the century, uh, you know, where an, a Jewish um, officer in the army was falsely accused of treason, and that had really divided the country into into the pro-Dreyfus and anti-Dreyfus camps. In 1936, there was a Jewish prime minister uh, elected, and that had you know, brought to the surface once again, this anti-Semitism and people were very comfortable um, because there was an extreme right-wing press um, demonising him. There'd been an assassination attempt on him. Um, and once again, this had allowed people to to express these things that they that from time to time are, are push, pushed back under the surface but never disappear. And it just takes either a crisis or a loud voice authorizing um, those types of sentiments for it all to come back out to the surface. So, you know, whether it be back then or, as you say, nowadays, that's that's re- a little bit disheartening to think that um, that's, that is something that is, has always been present in, in humanity um, and probably always will be. Um, and our, I guess our challenge is to counter those, um, you know, when we are hearing that people are being emboldened by politicians, for example, to have a strong counterforce, whether that be in press or just through our own social media presence. Um, but I don't think it's something that we can ever overcome. I think it is something deeply human to um, to have that notion of the other and to always be looking for um, scapegoats and to to, to exclude 
um, people who are, are different from us. Something that gave me pause there, as you were um, mentioning and invoking again the the very famous French motto of liberté, égalité, fraternité. Um, there are parallels in both the the on the surface the prima facie openness of the motto and the very quick except for Eunice of the reality in Australia's you know constantly evoking our our sense of mateship and a fair go. As soon as things get a little tough, as soon as we're backs to the wall, it's it's mateship, it's a fair go. Oh, but not for you. It's it's the in group yeah. versus the out group, and it's. I wanted to drop that in there because I think sometimes we read historical novels, and we can we can take comfort in our distance. And I mean, I'm going to come back to what I said at the beginning. Small acts of defiance is just an incredible story. It's it's pacey. There is so much happening. It's exciting. There are amazing characters, but I don't. I didn't take refuge in my my historical distance and I don't want to take refuge because I think it does have so much to say about conversations that we are or should be having today. Mm, absolutely. And I think, yeah, I mean, that was absolutely intentional in the writing um, because the echoes that I was hearing and feeling from, you know, what I was researching about the Second World War and what I was seeing on the on social media and in the, on television and the newspapers every day, there was such clear connections and echoes, um, that I really wanted that to be front of mind for the reader, um, that it, it's, we're not talking about people from centuries ago. There are people who lived through this period, um, and, and yes, um, we, are, we are still seeing the echoes of that period today. Um, you know, it broke my heart back in 2017-18 when I was in France. You know, we were seeing people who had lived through the Holocaust being confronted by swastikas and neo-Nazis. Mm. Um, Soon after I came back from um, France, in fact, with the residency, there was a an amazing woman, a politician, a French politician called Simone Bay, a Jewish a Holocaust survivor um, who had um, been a, an amazing um, uh, advocate for women's rights. She was a, a national hero. She died in 2018, um, and she was revered there. Her ashes were transferred to the Pantheon in Paris. And there were a whole lot of posters about out on the streets with her face. You know, she was really um, deified. And one morning, the Parisians woke up and someone or perhaps a group of people had spray-painted swastikas all over the posters mm -hmm. of this revered Holocaust survivor. Um, so, yeah, when you, when you see things like that going on, hopefully when the readers, when they're reading this, what is historical fiction, we'll, we'll never forget that there is a direct line between what happened back then and what is happening today. And, and it's never really gone away. It's, it's been held beneath the surface at times. There have been other preoccupations at times, but it's always, it's always there and bubbling under the surface and, and coming up um, whenever it's allowed to. And so we come to what I, I read, at least, as the central challenge of, the novel. It's there in the title, but I, I prefer, in fact, perhaps to... Well, look, despite occupying a liminal and troubled space in the narrative, Lucy's father, Alfred, really does get all the best lines. So I think what I want to do, I wanted to end with some advice he gives um, to Lucy, and he calls on her to help her decide ultimately how she will take part. He says, doing nothing is still a choice, a choice to stand aside and let it happen. Now, I, I feel like, again, terrific line. Alfred gets just the most amazing lines. I feel like I talk to too many people um, these days who believe that their voices are too small or that life is too busy for them to do anything, to make a difference. 
Do you think that Alfred's call to action, something that Lucy is constantly thinking about, is something that we should all heed? Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, as he says, there's um, if you don't take action, the, the enemy, whoever that enemy may be, it's going to fill that void. Um, so that, that space is going to be taken up. And if you refuse to, even if it's just your little two cents worth, even if it's just a comment on social media, if it is, if it is just some words or some art or some, uh, you know, whatever, however you want to contribute, if you don't do it, um, then you are leaving that space open to, to others um, who are often very well organized and who have a very loud voice to begin with. So as you know, like the character Alfred says, you know, choosing not to act is is action because you are ceding the the public uh, space to, uh, to other voices. Um, and if you're ceding it to other voices who are on your side and who can say things more eloquently um, and with more impact than you, well, that's fine. But you're also ceding that space to to your enemy, um, and that can be very dangerous. So. Even if it is just a small act, even if it's just a, a few words, even if it's just speaking to your racist uncle at, over Christmas lunch, um, I, I don't think we can afford to be silent. We have to each take up as much space as we're comfortable um, taking up, but we can't be silent. There's another there's another maxim that we oft, <clears throat> often hear that I think echoes similarly, and it's... <clears throat> Pardon me. <laughs> it echoes similarly uh, in the in that the standard that you walk past is the standard that you accept. So, I mean, I guess when we when we are hearing and seeing things that are troubling in our society, yeah, taking up a little bit of that space, and maybe maybe there are going to be lots of people out there listening who still think, well, I, I can't raise my voice, but perhaps even this is a book show after all. Offer a book, yeah. lend a book, recommend a book to someone that's going to challenge them with those ideas. And and I don't think um, you could go too, uh, go too far past small acts of defiance. <laughs> I am, I am speaking, no worries. I am speaking with Michelle Wright and the novel that we are discussing is Small Acts of Defiance. It is an incredible book whose story is very firmly situated in the 1940s, but whose ideas resonate with us today. Michelle, thank you so much for the time you've taken today to chat to me. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your questions, Andrew. It's been a great discussion. That's it for this great conversation with Michelle Wright. Michelle's debut novel, Small Acts of Defiance, is out now from Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. You can stay in touch. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. And subscribe in your podcast app. It means new Great Conversations, including a bonus midweek every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye now.